0: Right here at this time of day on Monday, Devin and Insight Peterborough. And Bob. Well, Yes, I'm yes. Here as well. I am here. Yes. Finally.
1: And um, welcome, everybody. Glad that you're with us as well. Insight Peterborough is a project of the Peterborough chapter of the Canadian Council of the Blind, otherwise known as the CCB. And uh, if you'd like to know more about what's happening, with the uh, CCB, all you have to do is write, uh, send an email to ccbpeterborough at gmail dot com, and uh,
0: they can probably email you as well.
1: They can. They can uh, email insightpeterborough at uh, gmail dot com if they want to uh, have any further information about Insight Peterborough. So, Bob, were you telling me uh, just before we came on the air that you don't have a cell phone?
0: I have a uh, flip phone, but I do not have one of these uh, fancy Androids, just an old flip phone.
1: Oh, yeah, Uh, and uh, not an iPhone either.
0: No, (laughs) I'm sorry, no.
1: Yeah, but you have heard of Siri, have you?
0: Uh I've heard of XM radio. Is it the same thing as no, XM? no,
1: no? That's serious.
0: Okay. Well, yeah. you tell me
1: then. All right. Well, Siri is uh, if you turn on um, on uh, if it's a, an iPhone, if you turn on Voiceover, then Siri will speak to you. Um, one of the silly questions I asked her one day is, "How old are you?" And she said to me, "Is that any of your concern?" <laughs> Well... (laughs) Uh, well, And it wasn't, (laughs) but anyway.
0: (laughs) That is something you didn't have to really know.
1: No, that's right. But anyway, it really comes in handy, for example, if I want to make an entry into my calendar, the uh, calendar part of my phone. Anyway, believe it or not, it was a person's voice who was behind uh, the voice of Siri, or who is the voice of Siri, and i came across uh, because so many people with disabilities use siri I, I think um on the android uh format they have uh, another name for their for their voice but anyway on the iphone it's siri and uh i found um podcast called eyes on success which uh comes on uh, in the, the states uh, every week And I thought it would be kind of fun because so many of us use Siri uh, to listen to more about that sort of thing. And so here are Peter and Nancy Torpy, who are the uh, hosts and creators of Eyes on Success, and they're going to be talking about the voice behind Siri.
0: So for anyone with any kind of handicap that's a handy...
1: Disability.
0: Yeah, disability. That's Shall we see if we can get this going?
2: Yes. Hello, and welcome to Eyes on Success, a weekly program of information on the ever-changing world of accessibility. Now here are the hosts of this program, Nancy Goodman Torpey and Peter Torpey. Hello, I'm
3: Nancy. And I'm Pete. Have you ever wondered who might be behind the voices of our smart assistants and how those voices are made? This week, we'll be talking about that.
4: We'll meet Susan Bennett whose voice was used to create the original female English language Siri voice. We'll speak with her about her experiences as a voice artist, actress, and musician, what it was like to create the voice for Siri, how she found out that she was the voice behind Siri, and how it changed her career. But first for our tip of the week, this week's tip comes from Susan Bennett.
5: You know, as we move along in life and in our careers, we're going to run into obstacles. We're going to run into things that are unexpected and perhaps may not seem to be positive uh, in our life. And all I can say is uh, embrace it, figure out a way to spin it to the positive for yourself and move on. That's what I learned from Siri.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and your experience with Siri is also an example of running into an unexpected positive that, you know, who, who thought you'd get famous from providing artificial voices?
5: I didn't consider fame positive because I'm an introvert. So I was not really interested in fame. And that was one of the reasons that it took me so long to reveal myself. So I thought, can I deal with this? Do I want to deal with this? So it was a good life lesson. It was. I think the life lesson is don't be afraid to step out of that proverbial comfort zone. (laughs) Because when you do, it seems like the universe always helps you, you know, do that scary thing.
3: Great. And that's sort of the point of this show, why we do this show, to show visually impaired people around the world that they can do a lot more than they think they might be able to do if they just step out and take a chance sometime.
5: Yep. You know, we all have different personalities, and a lot of people— you know, react differently to certain challenges. You know, some people, if you say to them, don't do this, you can't do this, you can't. They just, you know, rise up and go, oh, yes, I can. And then other people go, oh, well, gee, maybe he's right. (laughs) So, you know, you just have to try to find that inner strength to to make the move that's going to push you forward.
3: Support for Eyes on Success is
4: provided by the Hadley Institute for the Blind and Visually Impaired, offering the 2019 New Venture Business Competition to help blind entrepreneurs turn their ideas into actual startups. More information and submission criteria are at
3: www.hadley.edu slash nvc. And if you'd like to find out about having an audio promotional item for your organization or service appear in the show, send a note to us at hosts at eyesonsuccess.net. Let's start by meeting Susan. Susan, can you introduce yourself to our listeners, please?
2: Hello. I am the voice of Siri. Actually, my name is Susan Bennett, and I'm the original voice of Siri. <laughs>
4: <laughs> well, I hope you're not offended, but we had Samantha introduce
3: us at the beginning of the show.
5: Oh, okay. <laughs> yes, she's a good friend. <laughs> oh, good.
3: Well, since I'm blind, that I use JAWS as one of my synthesizers, and... Uh... I mostly use the electronic voice the kind of computerized eloquence voice but they do a great job with some of the real speech voices these days. So tell us a little bit about yourself and you know what you do for a living and
5: Well, uh, I'm technically a singer, a keyboard player and a voice actor and thanks to good old Siri I'm also a speaker, and I do a lot of Siri appearances and speaker events all over the country, and even uh, in some other countries. I've, I had a job in Croatia last year, so that was pretty interesting.
3: Oh, wow. And that's all related to talking about being Siri or doing that experience?
5: That's what the speaker event is about, because uh, I talk about how the recordings were done, what the phrases were like that I had to read that ultimately became the voice of Siri. And I talk about the voiceover business because essentially I never would have been the voice of Siri had I not already been a voice actor. And so I talk about that and I do a few different voices to illustrate, you know, what some of the the uh, the jobs that voice actors have. And then the last part is about how being the voice of Siri affected me and how it was a, quite a, a life lesson for me.
3: Oh, great. Well, maybe we can get to some of that in a little bit. You certainly sounded like Siri in
2: the beginning there.
5: (laughs) Okay, good.
2: (laughs) You are listening to Eyes on Success. Success, 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 success. This week's focus
4: topic is how Susan got to be the voice behind Siri and her experiences, both creating the voice and subsequently.
3: So tell us a little bit about how you got into voice acting. What was your start?
5: Well, I had been a jingle singer in the 70s and 80s, even into the 90s. And back in the day, you could actually have a career doing that. I used to do that several times a week. And sometimes I would be singing lead vocal. Other times I'd be singing with a group. And one day I had sung with a group, and of course I can't remember the particular product that we were uh, selling in this commercial, but we did a jingle, and at the end, the voice actor didn't show up to read the copy for the spot, or the written part of the spot. So the owner of the studio said, Susan, you don't have an accent, come over here and read this copy. (laughs) And I did, and a little bell went off in my head, and a ding, 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 I can do this. And so... Uh, It came very easily to me, so I got a voice coach, and then shortly after, a talent agent, and I've been doing voiceovers ever since, and that has been several decades ago.
4: Wow. So you mentioned that you don't have an accent, and you don't. You speak standard English, but you grew up in the Boston, Massachusetts area, which has a very distinctive accent, and you're now living in the Atlanta, Georgia area, which has a very different distinctive accent. Yes. Yes. How did you learn to turn on and off these various accents?
5: Well, I was fortunate that my parents moved to upstate New York when I was in the sixth grade. I had a very thick Boston accent at that point. And uh, in upstate New York, they have a fairly neutral accent, comparatively speaking. They have that broad A sound, which you get when you go more towards the Midwest, Chicago type of accent. But it's not very pronounced. It's quite neutral. So... For the years that I lived there, from you know I, I went there for junior high and high school. Uh, during that period of time, I lost that accent, which was very fortunate for someone who is going to ultimately be a, be a voice actor, uh, because as a voice actor, it's wonderful to be able to do a lot of different accents, but it's not good to have one regional accent that you can't speak without. So it was very fortunate that I that I lost my New England accent, and then uh, I've been in Atlanta for a very long time. And I do just try to be as neutral as possible because it's part of my job, you know, so I really try not to fall into the (laughs) fall into any of the colloquialisms or the regional accents that are around here.
3: You said that you started out singing jingles in the 70s. Were you trained as a musician?
5: Uh, I did study music and I've been playing the piano since I was four. I play by ear. And uh, I did study music for many years and thought I was going to major in, in music at Brown, but I ended up not doing that. Uh, but music is a huge part of my life.
3: It can be fun. I enjoy music, too, but mostly on the side. <laughs> I was a physicist in real life. But
5: oh, okay. I
3: used to have a jazz trio up in Rochester, New York. It was a lot of fun to play at senior facilities, jazz standards yeah. of the 30s and 40s. I take it a lot of voice actors have some kind of musical
5: background. Is that right? Yes, I think you find that a lot of uh, voice actors come from music. They also come from being a DJ. Um, A lot of people come, you know, are actors as well. Because I think one of the reasons that it's a natural progression to go from music to voiceover is that when you're reading copy, many times you have to. Utilize the rhythm. There's a rhythm that you speak with uh, for for doing certain scripts. Mm -hmm. And so having a musical background certainly helps with that.
3: It's not easy to read some of these things, especially for extended times. I had an experience in graduate school. I'm blind. And while I was reading for some of my physics books to be recorded, some of my colleagues decided, oh, I can read a physics book for you, and found out that after half an hour reading, it was pretty tough. How do you kind of get over that is that difficult or is that part of your training
5: well the only really long-form things that I've ever done are some narrations and of course the IVR work IVR work that uh, became the voice of Siri that was very very tedious uh, work and it lasted for four hours a day five days a week for an entire month
4: wow I hope you got some breaks
5: Oh, I did. I I took quite a few breaks, and when I did some updates a couple of years later, um, I said only two hours a day, because otherwise, the thing that made it difficult is, you know, DJs and people like that talk for four hours, you know, and sometimes more, but they're using the different pitches of their voice, and, you know, they go up and down like this, and, you know, um, take breathers and take breaks, but for the recordings that I did that became Siri... I had to read these uh, very strange sentences that were created just for sound, and each sentence had to be read exactly alike because the sounds needed to be consistent for the concatenation process. Now, concatenation is when technicians, programmers, go into the recordings that were done, extract sounds, reform these sounds into new phrases and sentences. These are what end up on our devices. And so... Recording them, each phrase had to be the same pacing, the same tone, the same pitch, and every word had to be very articulately expressed because they had to go in and and separate sounds. You know, so you had to be very. It's it was very exacting work, and and uh, it was a little bit tough on the vocal cords just because of the the amount of work done in in you know in one day.
4: Mm-hmm. And what does IVR stand for?
5: Interactive voice response.
4: And that's basically this process that you were describing of reading all of these strange sentences just to get the right phonemes.
5: That kind of refers to any of what we do with uh, Siri, Alexa, Cortana, whoever. It's, it's interactive voice response, the, the name given to the recordings and the name given to the to the scripts, because these scripts were very, very different from any other script I'd ever read.
3: Did it take some practice ahead
5: of time? No.
3: Because you said there were strange sentences.
5: Well, yeah, there were some strange sentences. Cow hoist in the tub hut today. Militia oi hallucinate buckra okra ooze. (laughs) And you can hear from those sentences. They made no sense at all. They weren't created for meaning, just for sound. So you can hear it, say, in the phrase, schist fresh issue today. You could hear the different S sounds combining in that that phrase. And so... uh, This went on for a very long time, so apparently there are lots and lots and lots of sound combinations in our (laughs) language.
4: (laughs) Oh, there are.
5: So when you were doing these
4: recordings, did you know what the end product was going to be, or you just knew that you were doing recordings that were going to be used to create some synthetic voice?
5: No, we didn't know anything about that. Um, I've talked to other uh, original Siri voices. I was the original English voice worldwide. But of course, there were other original Siri voices speaking different languages in different countries. So we all basically had the same experience. We thought we were just recording generic sounds for phone systems. You know, we had no idea uh, what Siri was. When, When I found out that my voice was Siri's voice, it was a complete and utter surprise.
4: And how did you find out?
5: A fellow voice actor emailed me and said, uh, on October 4th, 2011, when Siri first appeared, he said, uh, hey, we're playing around with this new iPhone app. Isn't this you? And I went, what? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I went on the Apple site and listened and said, yep, that's my voice.
3: Wow, what a surprise.
4: (laughs) Mm -hmm. So now you hear yourself all the time?
5: I do, but I was used to hearing myself on radio and TV commercials and that sort of thing. But now it's, uh, you know, my voice is pretty much ubiquitous. It's everywhere.
3: (laughs) It's interesting, though, when you introduced yourself as Siri, you really sounded distinctively like Siri. You can sort of hear it in your voice now, but you Mm -hmm. sort of did something different to your voice to make you sound like Siri.
5: Well, I just lowered the voice. I lowered the pitch a little bit and maybe spoke not quite so conversationally. Ah, I see. (laughs) Yeah.
4: That's amazing how you can go in and out of (laughs) your regular voice and your mechanical voice.
5: Well, that's part of being a voice actor. Most of us are freelancers, and we have to audition for all the work that we get. So it's to our benefit to be as versatile as possible, to be able to make as many sounds as possible, and to have different accents and uh, even different characters that we can portray.
4: So just to give our listeners an idea of what kind of range of accents and characters you play, could you give us a quick list?
5: Uh, Well, uh, how about the evil queen? Hello. I'm very happy to talk with you today. I wish I could be there with you. And then I could cast my evil spell on you. (laughs) (laughs) Then there's uh, the little elf, Star. Hi, my name is Star. I live up at the North Pole with Santa and Mrs. Claus. (laughs) Would you like to come visit me there sometime?
3: (laughs) That's terrific.
5: And how about Madame Francesca, fortune teller?
2: Ah, come in. I read Crystal Ball for you. Ah, I see. You will meet tall dark stranger.
4: So do you put on all these voices when you read books to your children or whatever youngsters you have in your life?
5: My son is 42, so those days are gone.
4: Grandchildren?
5: Uh, No, not yet, unfortunately. But I use a lot of those different voices during my Siri presentations because, well, years ago when I first started in voiceover, people didn't really know what voiceover was. Now it's become a pretty big deal. Everyone's trying to be a voice actor and so people know a little bit more about it now, but it's entertaining to hear all these different voices. So that's one of the, one part of my presentation.
3: So how does one learn all of this? What is your training to be able to do these things and how do you keep it all in shape?
5: Well, a lot of it's just practice. A lot of it is just uh, being able to hear well and just uh, not everybody that's a voice actor can imitate, you know, sounds and, and very few people can completely imitate actual people so it's just something that you you work on and uh, as far as taking care of your voice you just you do have to do that and a a lot of it has to do with you know how healthy you are to begin with Um, but taking care of the voice is important not to overstress it and uh, to keep away from food and drink that's bad for you no smoking at all of course and uh, it's different for each individual person really but you do have to kind of take care of it because it'll go away if you're not careful.
3: Well, I was thinking even with athletes, you know, they exercise to keep their muscles in shape. Musicians exercise their fingers if they play the piano. And there's got to be the corresponding things for taking care of your voice.
5: Well, yes, actually, it's, it's harmful not to use it, too. It's, you know, it's harmful to use it too much, especially if you're not using it correctly. Mm-hmm. And then uh, it's not very helpful not to use it at all. So somewhere in, in the nice in-between there.
3: Do you still perform as a musician these days?
5: Yes. Yes, my husband and I are with a band called Boomers Gone Wild. (laughs) We play um, 60s and 70s rock and soul music, and uh, he's a fabulous guitar player and singer. And I uh, play keyboard and keyboard bass and sing. And uh, it's a five-piece band, and we we have a great time.
3: Wow. You play mostly in the Atlanta area, or do you travel around?
5: No, we don't really travel. It, it's kind of a fun, it's a hobby band at this point, because we had a, um, a private party band for close to 25 years, and uh,
3: yeah. Wow, that sounds like a lot, a lot of fun.
5: So this one is just for fun, yeah.
3: Uh-huh. Are there any special experiences or stories from recording the Siri voice that come to mind?
5: Not really. As I said, it was a pretty tedious procedure. You know, of course, sometimes we would laugh about, you know, some of the things that, that were in the script. Um, and when I did updates, which I think was mostly for, I believe the GPS side of whatever I was recording for. And the noteworthy thing about that was that I was being directed by a person with the nuance corporation. They're the people that we did the work for. And then Apple got our voices from nuance and the director and I would end up guessing on so many pronunciations. And I thought, wait a minute, you know, you guys are like a $2 billion corporation, you couldn't get an intern to look up these. And we were guessing at all these things. For instance, if we had uh, a street name that sounded Spanish or Hispanic, Latin, we would see what state it was in. If it was in Massachusetts, we would give it an Anglicized pronunciation. And if it were, say, in New Mexico, or Texas, we would give it a uh, Spanish pronunciation, and all this time I'm just thinking, can't you guys really? You guys can't afford to, you know, hire somebody <laughs> right. to bring this stuff up.
3: Yeah, how funny. You know. yeah.
5: Well, that's
4: a good start, but that's not a guarantee of getting it right. There are towns in Colorado where we live, which, of course, Colorado is how Americans pronounce it, but not the original Spanish pronunciation.
5: Oh, not all Americans say Colorado. Most Americans say Colorado. That's strictly a Colorado thing.
4: <laughs> right. But there are towns called Salida and Buena Vista. And oh, heaven yeah. help you, you try to pronounce them with the correct Spanish pronunciation because right. then everybody thinks you're really nuts.
3: Yeah, that's
5: pretty weird. <laughs>
3: So you talked about this process in the early 2000s taking four hours a day for about a month, and it sounds like a very tedious, long, drawn-out process. Has the process changed at all for creating voices like that over the years?
5: You know, I, um, I haven't done much of it recently. Um, I really kind of had my fill. They wanted to put me under a contract for five years, and I said, no, I think I've lost enough gray matter already. It's <laughs> um, oh very very tedious stuff, and I and I just, it's not creative at all. It's just strictly hard work, and um, I had done it for a number of years, and so I I stopped doing it. I would have to say now that it's so far into, you know, then I mean I did my recordings in two thousand five, and so, you know, that's almost fifteen years ago, and so certainly I'm sure it's very very different now that they have all of the basic sounds. I'm sure that a lot of it's just you know actually. Sentence spoken sentences updating things, but I don't know for sure because I haven't done it for a while
3: hmm mm-hmm. And what kind of work are you primarily doing these days? What kind of voiceover work?
5: Well, I do a lot of uh, Siri stuff and that was one of the reasons it took me a couple of years to reveal myself. I was afraid it was going to impact my voiceover career and it sort of has Um, you know people tend to typecast you stereotype you and especially in this business they tend to typecast you Mm -hmm. and so when they find out that I'm the voice of Siri they go oh oh, okay well that's all she can do and of course (laughs) if you go to my website susancbennett.com you can hear lots more than Siri so
3: what other of your voices might people be familiar with?
5: Oh, dear. Uh, well, I'm the voice of Delta Airlines Gates Worldwide. They have more than one female voice, though, so it's hard for me to tell you which one is mine. Maybe after talking to Siri so much, you recognize it anyway. Basically, I used to just be on a lot of radio and TV commercials, and so there's nothing, you know. I, occasionally, I'll pop up in a movie. I was the submarine voice in the movie The Meg. Wow. <laughs> and, and, yeah, yeah, I've uh, I pop up. lot of different places these days
3: so it must be interesting as you said being the voice of siri i mean i guess it can have both positive and negative impacts on your career you know people who want another synthetic voice might be a little reluctant to have you be their voice because it's like oh that's siri that's done by someone else or so on the other hand it's kind of that's siri we can have it too
5: yeah. Well, we have no I have no way of measuring the impact that that's had on my career. Mm-hmm. But I don't have to sound like Siri all the time, you know. <laughs> I could raise my voice and make my voice more casual, but I do still get a lot of requests for Siri-like characters.
3: It's interesting you did do some very good imitations of other characters that you wouldn't associate with Siri or your voice necessarily.
5: Right. Well, that's part of being an actor. <laughs>
3: And here is an audio clip from
4: Susan's website that she graciously allowed us to air on this show, including some examples of other places where you may have heard Susan's voice.
2: I'm voice actor Susan Bennett, here today with one of my alter egos, Siri. Siri here. May I call you Siri? Call me Rock Goddess. Okay, Rock Goddess. Other than the iPhone and iPad, where have we heard your, uh, my voice? Did you see Mission Impossible for 4 hours 52 minutes? Delta Airlines Gates Worldwide. Thank you for choosing Delta Airlines. What about TV and radio? Searching the web for Siri. Uh, Susan Bennett VoiceOver. Chiquita. Quite possibly the world's perfect food. You can have it all right now with the Acura TSX. At Papa John's, we don't have to keep reinventing the pizza. Better ingredients, better pizza. Papa John's. Dow Bathroom Cleaner, starring Scrubbing Bubbles. Listen to 101.5 live at LightMiami.com. You were out the door in a flash, but you still got to pick up breakfast. So stop by Crystal and try the Express Breakfast Combo. Discovery has been on an extraordinary journey, taking viewers where they've never been. Wow, Siri, we're everywhere. We rock.
4: And maybe you recognized some of those voices. Now for this week's final item, how to contact
3: Susan Bennett. So if people wanted to learn more about you, you have a website and what other contact information would you like to share?
5: Well, you can find lots of information on the website, SusanCBennett.com, and uh, you can get my email address there if you want to contact me about uh, doing voiceover work. I put together a doc um, giving some advice uh, to people who want to get into the voiceover business. There are lots of you out there. Also, there's a speaker demo on there. I'm really trying to do a lot more of the speaker presentations. I really enjoy it a lot and get to travel, so that's very cool. And there's all kinds of radio and TV commercials and all kinds of of crazy things on the website. But you can also, for booking, you can contact my agents at Vox, Inc. in Los Angeles. And that's Wes Stevens and Tom Lawless at Vox. And you can get their uh, website, their email information on my site as well. And certainly just Google it. Um, And then you can contact me on Twitter and Instagram at seriously susan and seriously is S-I-R-I-O-U-S-L-Y. And my Facebook page is Susan Bennett-Voice of Siri.
3: Great. And for anybody listening in Atlanta, if they wanted you and your husband to play, can they do that?
5: Absolutely. Yeah, send me an email and I'll write you right back. <laughs> <laughs>
4: sounds great and remind people of the name of your band
5: well we have lots of different types of bands but the main one that we're working with now is called boomers gone wild
3: and we'll have all that contact information in the show notes associated with this episode at www.eyesonsuccess.net also in the show notes you'll find a previous episode where we talk with the developers at Nuance about how these voices are put together to make the speech synthesizers themselves. And that is episode 1717, if you're looking for it. That's it for show number
4: 1916. Next week on Eyes on Success, we'll be talking with Dan Parker, who lost his vision in a racing accident and now, being totally blind, builds and races both motorcycles and cars and in addition participates in audible target shooting which is slated to become a paralympic sport and he's on the initial development team for that and also teaches machine shop to sighted high school students If you have any questions regarding something you've heard about on the show or you'd like to share an idea for a future show, send an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net or
2: call us at 585-210-8094. We hope you'll join us again next week for more information and updates on products for accessible living. Thanks for listening to Eyes on Success, and have a nice day.
1: So that's that's interesting, isn't it, Bob?
0: Indeed, and the different accents that you'll come across, even in Peterborough. (laughs) Got a question for you. Yeah? Is it Monaghan Road, or is it Monaghan Road?
1: Well, if you're a local, it's Monaghan. There you go.
0: Not Mahogan.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no. So, uh, anyway, um, at the end of uh, this month, on the 31st of uh, January every year, it's Bell Let's Talk Day. And of course, that's talking frankly about mental illness and with a view to getting rid of the stigmas associated with mental illness. And I had the opportunity to listen to a presentation that a lady named Veronica Morris did for the Guide Dog Users Incorporated convention last July. And she was uh, introducing her psychiatric service dog. Now, the Lions Foundation does not train psychiatric service dogs, but there are places here in Canada that do. And uh, although this lady is from the States, I'm sure that uh, the dogs trained here are trained to do uh, much the same tasks that uh, Veronica's. So I I thought, seeing that Bell Let's Talk Day is coming up soon, Bob, I thought we should listen to this presentation.
0: And this is Veronica Morris? Yes. There we go.
1: And and I'm Veronica Morris, and
6: with me I have a little 9-pound Japanese Chin psychiatric service dog. She is black and white. She has big googly eyes that kind of point in different directions. She has a smushed nose, a head that's shaped like a racquetball, and as the breed standard says, a look of perpetual astonishment. She is my third service dog and to start with, I will tell you a little bit about my history with service dogs. So um, when I was in um, graduate school getting my master's, um, I was having a lot of struggles with my bipolar disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, and agoraphobia, which is fear of leaving my house. And my therapist suggested that I volunteer at the local animal shelter. So I was like, well, that sounds like a good idea. And I started walking all the dogs at the animal shelter. Now, most of the dogs, when you would take them out for walks, they would chase squirrels and bark and pull on the leash and just basically be dogs. And um, this one dog came in, and she was a Weimreiner Pitbull mix named Sabrina. She was a brindle color, but instead of being a black and brown brindle, she was a silver and champagne brindle. She was absolutely beautiful. And um, she had separation anxiety, which meant she destroyed the place while you were out. And... Um, She would, when I took her out for walks, instead of pulling around and everything, she would sit on my feet, look up at my face, and just want to have loving. And it came time for her to be put down. And I didn't know anything about service dogs at that point. All I knew was that this dog was special. There was something about her that really helped me out with my disabilities. So I took a chance and adopted her. Um, within about six months, I noticed that she started naturally alerting to my mood swings and panic attacks, which gave me the time to take medication or call someone to come pick me up or um, you know do other breathing exercises or whatever I needed to do to not go into a full-blown panic attack or bipolar mood swing when I was in the middle of class. Um, And, um, well actually at that point, when I was in the middle of doing stuff around the apartment. And I was on the medication merry-go-round, as we like to call it, where I was trying different medications. And um, I uh, ended up severely ill with some of the medications. And I talked with my therapist and I explained how much my dog helps me. And she said, well, you know, there's something called a psychiatric service doc. And I said, what's that? She told me about them, that a psychiatric service dog is a dog that helps someone with a psychiatric disability by doing worker tasks to help with their disability uh, and being well-behaved in public. And so I said, well, let's try that. And I was able to lower my medications and train my dog as a psychiatric service dog. Um... She was four years old when I started training her, so she didn't have a long working life. Um, and um, I, shortly after uh, she graduated, I started looking for my second service dog. Um, at the time, I wanted a, um, a dog that was a little bit larger. So I chose to go with a silver standard poodle named Olivander, And um, he worked out very well for me. He um, started out naturally alerting to my panic attacks by barking, which was not very helpful. And so I had to retrain him, and I did that by using just redirection um, to nudge my hand when I was having a panic attack. My first service dog, Sabrina, she would sit in front of me and look up at me when I was having a panic attack or mood swing and not take her eyes off me. Um... Unfortunately, Ollie was attacked several times, both by other pet dogs and by other service dogs, owner-trained and program-trained. Unfortunately, that happens when you're living in Berkeley, California, and you see about seven other service dogs a week. (laughs) And um, unfortunately, he developed a fear of other dogs and had to be retired early. Um, And that left me without a dog. And my agoraphobia went into um, just overdrive. I could not leave the house. I couldn't do anything. I was unable to work. It was just horrible. Um, And so I uh, started looking for my third service dog. Now, what I noticed from Ollie um, was that when I was walking around, he was a very tall, A poodle. He was 28 inches at the shoulder, and when I was walking around, I could reach down and touch his head with my hand, and that contact with him was um, able to what I call ground me, which is keep me present in space and time. And um, doing that really helped me out a lot, um, just staying calm and knowing that I had a dog with me to help me. Um, So I knew I wanted a dog that was was able to give have contact with me while I was on the go. Um, I also really liked the fact that whenever I was sitting at a table, he would stand under the table, he loved to stand, he could sleep standing, and he would stand under the table and put his head in my lap and press his head down. And that pressure, we call it pressure therapy, was able to ground me as well. Um, So whenever I would start getting anxious, he would just put his head in my lap, push his head down on my lap, and I was able to uh, stay calm and usually avoid a full-blown panic attack. So when it came time for me to um, choose a third service dog breed, I said, well, I want a dog that I can touch while I'm on the go, and that can give me pressure therapy in my lap. So I decided, well, either I have to go with another really big dog, or I could try a little dog. And I decided to give a little dog a try. Um, and I said, well, you know, if I don't like it, I can always train a new dog. Um, but I found out that I really, really like having a small service dog. I travel a lot and they fit a lot better on the airplane (laughs) than the big dogs. Um, they cost less to feed and she's able to, um, when I'm having, um, issues in a store or something like that, I can carry her and she, um provides the tactile stimulation that I need. Um, and then also when we are um, sitting down somewhere, she's able to do what I call the lean, which means that she um, leans all of her body weight into my chest by pushing off onto my from my arms and, um, and, and really pushes that weight into me. And that has a really grounding effect on me and really helps out a lot in um, my uh, uh, panic attacks. So the, the way that you'll notice that she um, helps me with my panic attacks is that she licks me intently. So you'll see her right now. She's kind of sleeping in my arms. Um, but if I, if I start to have a panic attack, she will um, start licking my arms or my hands very intently and, um, and sometimes crawl up on my chest if, I, if I'm not able to avert the panic attack by breathing exercises and um, regular pressure therapy in my lap. So I'd like to share a little bit about how I trained her to to alert me to my anxiety attacks because I think that um, a lot of people suffer from anxiety. Even if it's not disabling, you can use your service dog, your guide dog, to help with your anxiety too. So this might be helpful for you as well as being educational. So what I would do is every time I would start to have a panic attack, I would call her over to me and give her some really, really yummy treats that were reserved only for panic attack time. (laughs) pretty soon she started sensing when I was having a panic attack and she would come running over and say oh come on feed me those treats It it was very fast and from there I originally wanted her to do a pause up on my leg to let me know when I was having anxiety so I I started trying to teach her, so when she, when I would start to have a panic attack and she'd come running over, I would ask for a pause up and then give the treats. She decided on her own that um, she would do a pause up and then she would lick me intently, um, and I I could tell that she preferred the licking rather than the pause up. So I said, "Fine, I'll let you lick," even though I don't really like licking. Um, So that is how I trained her, and that's how I trained my first two service dogs. Um, I also wanted to share some things that other different types of service dogs might be able to do that are, some are similar to what your dogs do, and some are quite different. So um, some of you might have heard of seizure alert dogs or diabetic alert dogs, and these dogs usually are alert to a seizure or a diabetic uh, blood sugar change based on the scent of the person. So in the case of a seizure alert, dog, um, the person wears, uh, once they have a seizure they take off the shirt that they're wearing they put it in a plastic bag and um, send it off to the school or if they're owner training their dog, they keep it in the refrigerator or freezer and they use traditional scent training techniques to train the dog the difference between the smell of the shirt when there was a seizure happening and the smell of a shirt where there's no seizure and for a diabetic dog dogs, alert dogs, um, the, the, instead of using a t-shirt, they use uh, cotton swabs that you chew in your mouth when you're having a high or a low blood sugar event, which the dogs can easily smell. Um, and again, it's the same training techniques you might not be familiar with the fact that a lot of psychiatric service dogs are trained in something called forward momentum pull, um, which is um, if a person loses inertia and is unable to move their legs um, because due to anxiety or any other type of mental illness, um, the dog is trained just like a guide dog to give that that nice pull, and get the person moving along in a straight line. Um, And something that my first service dog, I trained her to do, um, was to lead me home when I would dissociate. Now, dissociation is when you lose yourself in space and time. And... um, So I would be at the office, and she would alert me. And at the time, I was not on um, medication that was able to help with this. And so if if I didn't have someone to call to come pick me up, I would be stuck at the office for hours until the dissociation event passed because I couldn't process my environment. So I trained her to lead me from the office to the train station, get me on the right train, get me off at the right stop, and lead me back to my house. So that's something that a lot of you guys are probably pretty familiar with your dogs doing, and it's something that can be used for people with other disabilities as well. Let's see. Is there anything else I was going to cover? Oh, yes. My favorite, absolute favorite, I don't know how I could forget it, type of thing that uh, a psychiatric service dog can help with is something called hallucination discernment. And this is for people who have hallucinations, like people with schizophrenia. And I have a friend with schizophrenia, and she often hallucinates dangerous people. And so when she walks into a room, she doesn't know who are the real people in the room and who are the hallucinating, hallucinations in the room. And so she has trained her dog whenever she walks into a room. Her dog, a beautiful German shepherd, uh, indicates with their nose, they point with their nose at all of the individuals in the room. And so she just looks down at her dog's head, and watches her dog indicate who's in the room is real. And then she knows, okay, that guy in the corner with a knife, my dog didn't nod at him. He's not real, which is just absolutely life-changing. If you can imagine, you couldn't leave your house before because you couldn't tell who was dangerous and who was you know hallucination now she can go anywhere and do anything she wants and all she has to do is look down at her dog every time she goes somewhere and her dog's able to tell her oh that's real that's not real so i will pass the mic oh go ahead oh yes um So before I started using a service dog, um, I had severe uh, issues leaving the house. So as an example, um, when I would go to the grocery store with Brad, I would hold onto his shirt, I would look at the floor, and I would just follow him. And I was not able to look at anything in the store. I couldn't read any labels, which is important because I'm allergic to a lot of things. Um, I couldn't... Participate in the grocery shopping experience, same thing in any other store, I would just hold on to Brad and look at my feet and shuffle along in the store as best I could. Um, and at the beginning, when I started using a service dog, Brad actually wasn't very supportive. He was kind of like, why do you need a service dog? I'm here to help you. Um, and so as we were in the grocery stores more and more with my service dog, suddenly I started being able to look up. I started being able to go to the end of the aisle. Sometimes I was even able to go to the next aisle over. My second service dog, Ollie, I trained to find Brad in the store, so I was able to go anywhere in the store. And, um, and if I had an issue, I could just ask Ollie to find Brad. He would lead me right to Brad. And I I was fine. So it's really amazing. Nowadays with Hestia, she's um, been my third service dog and my favorite service dog. And she has done the most for me. And um, nowadays, after not being able to drive um, for over a decade, I'm able to drive by myself, go to the grocery store by myself, shop with a list, manage a cart, pay money, which is something that I was never able to do my whole entire life. So um, psychiatric service dogs and other types of service dogs are able to do so much to help people with other types of disabilities.
0: Well, I guess... uh uh Devon uh that kind of
1: <laughs> caught us by surprise <laughs> us didn't by it surprise.
0: <laughs> you know okay yeah. so i uh, just quit talking there <laughs>
1: well, that's what <laughs> happened yeah so anyway uh that was an educational um presentation that uh she made and um uh, uh that also appeared on spotlight on assistance dogs which is another one of my uh, podcasts. Uh, that um, I'm able to do thanks to um, PIP, which is the Peterborough Independent Podcasters. They have an accessibility team, and I'm able to uh, put up uh, three podcasts so far. And, anyway.
0: And Devin, you've had at least two service dogs, or have had.
1: Oh, I've had, uh, this is my fourth.
0: Fourth service yeah, dog. Yeah, Frankie, Frankie is, is your my fourth. guide.
1: Yeah. Yeah, fourth guy, dog.
0: And uh, you retire them, apparently, something like after eight years' service sometimes?
1: Well, between 10 and 11 years of age.
0: Oh, wow. All
1: depending on their state of health and that sort of thing. And uh, the last two dogs that I had, Oak and Vester, were able to work the full length of time. And um, Sally... I had her first. She was a female golden retriever, and she was able to work only uh, until she was eight and a half because she had uh, severe inflammatory bowel disease.
0: Oh, wow, wow. Yeah,
1: and thyroid problems as well. So uh, when she really started losing the pounds and got down into the uh, mid 50s as far as weight, was concerned. I I phoned the school and said, "Okay, I think this is it. You know, this is time to retire her." As much as I didn't want to, but that's one of the things, one of the realities that you have to face.
0: You get very uh, close.
1: Oh, you do. To your
0: service dogs.
1: Yeah, because you you know you're with them twenty four seven.
0: Right. Yeah. Now, um do you have something in mind for next week? Uh, oh yes,
1: um, we have uh, Dr. Warren Ball, who is a cardiologist, and he's going to come and talk to us about the uh, cardiac catheterization fundraiser that uh, they're doing at the uh, through the uh, PRHC uh, Foundation, and uh, how useful that um, piece of equipment is in uh, uh, repairing the, the damage done by heart attacks and that sort of thing. February is heart month, so I thought it was appropriate to have somebody like that come and talk to us. And then the other person we have, well, we may have two people, but the, one for sure is Leslie Yi, and she is the chair of the local chapter of the uh, Canadian Council of the Blind that um, uh, presents this show. And um, the first week of February from the 2nd to the 8th is White Cane Week.
0: Well, there you
1: go. uh, And you don't use one? uh, No, no. It's a very personal uh, choice that uh, each individual has to make. And I have one in case I need it. All right. But, um, no, I very seldom ever use it. Uh, But anyway, she'll be here to talk to us about uh, some of the activities that will be happening during White Cane Week that you can participate in if you want to.
0: And other than the service dogs and, of course, uh, the white cane, there's lots of other um, media that's available for the blind or the handicapped, is there not? Disabled? Yes, disabled.
1: Um yeah uh are you talking technology?
0: Well I'm talking <clears throat> maybe about your watch and about oh, all yeah. the other um tools that are available.
1: Yeah, well Braille is uh used on a lot of things like watches and clocks and cards, you know, playing cards and Scrabble games and bingo uh cards and uh that sort of thing there are rulers and measuring tapes with uh Braille on them and uh, various uh, devices. Now, a lot of people have gone to the uh, more high-tech stuff that have have computer chips in them. Uh, But there again, it's a personal choice. I would rather use a Braille watch because I don't want a talking watch telling me (laughs) what time it is when I sneak a peek during church or something like that. Well,
0: you know, we did have... Uh, people talking about Braille on this program.
1: Yes, we did. Yeah, and uh, it's really important to uh, keep talking about it because it's not obsolete like a lot of people think that it is.
0: And there's still Braille books.
1: Oh yes. Braille
0: Bibles, all kinds of things that you can still yeah find that are brailled.
1: Oh, there's nothing like lying in bed with a big Braille book on your stomach reading until you fall asleep and then when the book hits the floor it wakes you up again
0: (laughs) (laughs) they're a little bit bigger
1: yeah oh yes yes indeed Mm. the uh, bible for example is made up of uh um, 18 volumes each of which are three inches thick
0: Okay. So
1: it's not something, I have a dictionary that's called the Vest Pocket Dictionary, and you (laughs) cannot fit that into your (laughs) vest pocket.
0: There you go. Well, you know what, I think it's time for us to basically say goodbye for today. All right. Uh, You know, and you know what, Uh, looking forward for sure uh, next Monday. And I think that our uh, people we had today about uh, Siri and that, you know, uh, interesting about Voice characterization and uh, pronunciation and accents, even in Peterborough, right? Yeah,
1: Yep, yeah, that's for sure.
0: Now, is a crick something in your neck or is it a body of water?
1: Well, it all depends on how you say it, I guess. <laughs> <go>. Okay, Devin, <laughs> all we'll right. say bye-bye uh, goodbye, for everybody. Bye bye for Take now. Take care.
0: You bet.